keto eating is kind of all the rage right now. I feel like I was an early adopter. Uh, six or seven years ago, I read on Reddit about something called keto chow because I am super lazy about eating. I don't like shopping for food. I don't like thinking about what I'm going to eat next. I don't like preparing food very much. And my favorite food is the food that just appears in front of me. And I thought, you know, if only I could find some kind of decent meal replacement that I didn't mind eating, that would be helpful. Anyway, so I read about keto chow, how it was really delicious, and it was made with heavy cream, and that if you were going to use this as a meal replacement, you really needed to have uh, a diet that was overall super, super high fat, uh, low carb. So that's sort of how I started to get interested in learning about ketosis and this way of eating and how this type of eating worked really well in conjunction with fasting. And I was sort of interested in that because my natural rhythm has always been to only eat once or maybe twice a day. And I had thought that that was uh, not a good thing that I should be eating small meals all the, t all the time. But the more I read about high fat diets and uh, ketosis, the more I realized it was okay if I only ate once a day and that eating fat does not make you fat. When I first started to learn about this type of eating, I thought, huh, well, if this is a way of eating that makes sense for humans, would it be so crazy to think that this might be a good way for dogs to eat too? And I looked around a little bit online for information on this uh, and for products, um, and I really didn't find anything. But then the other day, in my inbox, I got an email, and the subject was, Your dog wasn't built to eat carbs. Podcast guest submission. Uh, it was someone suggesting I speak to Daniel Shuloff, who started a company that sells super low-carb, dry dog food. So I wanted to learn more. My name is Daniel Shuloff, and um, I am at least somewhat notable in the dog ownership community for two reasons. One is I am the author of a 2016 book that's called Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma, which is about the weird overlap between um, industry, clinical veterinary practice, and the scientific community in the world of um, companion animal nutrition. And then secondly, I'm the founder of a company that makes dog food. I'm the founder of a company that's called Keto Natural Pet Foods. We're notable because we make kibble, but with the very low carbohydrate content previously only available in like a raw diet. Is this book about the keto diet? Well, it, it basically sprung from my um, journey down the rabbit hole surrounding the problem of obesity among pets in the Western world. And my attempt to try to um, re 
I was, I was, as I like understood, as I came to learn more and more about that issue, I grew increasingly skeptical of what I think of as the mainstream explanation for the problem of obesity among pets in the Western world. And um, the book advances kind of two theses. And one of them is that essentially carbohydrate is the devil when it comes to matters of body composition and obesity in dogs and cats. And so um, in that way, the company certainly sprung from my, you know, as I developed that belief, uh, it, it, you know, we make a product that's consistent for other folks who are either persuaded by what I wrote in the book or who have come to that belief on their own. Is it about um, also the way people feed their dogs as opposed to what they're feeding their dogs? Is, is, is that any part of it? That or is the yeah. problem of obesity? Um, it's not, I don't really take a stand on or try to like kind of poke at any of the, the issues surrounding that. Do you mean kind of like um, when you say the way people feed their dogs, do you mean like the uh, time, time and frequency, that kind of thing? Or are you referring to something? Well, it like sounds that? like your book, it's not, a, it's not so much about um, like the, I don't know. Maybe we should talk about your book another time. Cause I feel like, uh, I, I feel like I, I'm not going to ask good questions about it cause I haven't read it. Um, but I'm interested to learn more, but why don't you just sort of tell me about how, how you first got interested in, in dog food at all. Your background is actually oh, yeah. in, in law. Is that right? Yes. If you, if you rewind the tape 12 years to 2010, I was practicing law in the city of Atlanta. I was a much younger man. In fact, I was a single man and I got my first, I was raised with dogs. My mother, uh, was a, a breeder of golden retrievers. And I was like dogs. We often had a litter of goldens running around. She wasn't like a, you know, industrial scale operation by any means, but she was a hobbyist. And so, yeah, we often had puppies running around. We were popular kids because friends, people could always come over and hang out with our puppies. And so, yeah, it instilled a certain degree of like, you know, appreciation, uh, and love for, uh, dogs in me early enough. And, um, yeah, I got my first one that was my proper dog when I was a single guy working two long hours in the city of Atlanta, the dog that I got, um, has now passed on recently ish, but he was a, um, quintessential male Rottweiler, big dog, very intense dog, lot of drive and the kind of dog that needed, um, uh, some, you know, considerable amount of exercise and other energy relief in order to be like a polite member of society. And, and I, you know, I, I know very little about your area of expertise training, but I, I was able to understand that exercising him, um, regularly helped keep some of his like less desirable impulses in check and, um, basically trying to understand how to do that well. Um, because I was such, I was working such a busy schedule and I was so like all over the place, um, trying to learn how to do that more efficiently, kind of like led me to try to look at the scientific records surrounding that issue. What's the most efficient way to, and appropriate way to exercise a dog. And that's what led me to the issue of obesity and like, just kind of was struck over the head with facts about the prevalence and seriousness of the problem of obesity in dogs. Um, the two facts that I often quote are number one, more than half the dogs in the country right now are overweight or obese. So if you pick a dog at random, you're more likely to you know, just pick the next dog you see. It's more likely than not that that dog is overweight. And number two, 
there's a body of evidence well established, you know, folks have done these studies where they follow animals over the course of their entire lifetime, and they look at the impact of body composition on disease prevalence and overall life and health span. And essentially what it comes out to show is that being moderately overweight, so not like colossally obese, but something that, you know, many people probably wouldn't even recognize that the animal is overweight is worse for that animal's lifespan than an entire lifetime of smoking is for a person. Reduce the dog's lifespan on average by more than, you know, on a percentage basis, then a lifetime of smoking is likely to shorten a human being's lifetime. So wow, deadly is smoking, but it's more than half the dogs in the country. That's really good news for smokers. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, it was basically like, uh, yeah, I'll, um, so, so, so you learn that and you're like, oh, my God, this is such a big problem. Why is this happening? And the explanation that I was that I came to or came to understand is kind of the, 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 the mainstream explanation is that pet owners are essentially love loving our pets to death is like the phrase you see a lot that either were too lazy to give them the uh, exercise that they need or were too weak willed and we have to we can't stop ourselves from giving them fattening food products. I would also think it has something to do with the fact that we live in um, uh, so many dogs are living with people who have such excess. And while dogs are not literally, uh, dogs in our home may not literally be living off of our garbage, that is traditionally what dogs have lived off of. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I wonder if it has something to do with, with just excess waste. I mean, so much of dog food is just like made from waste of human food, but at a factory level. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah, yeah that's a fair point. Um, I, I think it has macro, I guess it has like macro implications, I think, about like, you know, there there's, there's too much garbage almost for the dogs to be eating and they're just eating it all up. Um, and also like, it's not as necessary to be like fit in order to, for dogs to survive. Right. Like, yeah, like <laughs> yeah, they can get by in, in the, in the short run, there's very little need to, um, you know, there's, there's certainly no like need to scavenge or need to take down, you know, wild prey or anything like right. that. So like evolution no longer, is uh is eating out the uh yeah. yeah well same thing with people right uh yeah uh, alas it is however and evolution plays a big part in my book you know it's like basically the story that i tell begins like when i when i was what i'm describing is how like my thoughts evolved over the course of time when i was begin considering like oh wow maybe i there's there's a story here that hasn't been told and maybe i'm the guy to tell this story because like those those explanations that I kept seeing over and over again, like didn't add up for me. It was just like, that can't be how could this this is such a big deal. And it's so common. Are we really just like screwing this up? That kind of seems like unlikely to me. And so, you know, I basically spent four years trying to like see if that stuff held water within the like peer reviewed scientific record. And so the, the way that I tell the story of that, those four years begins in Yellowstone National Park when I basically went up and lived with the biologist from the Yellowstone Wolf Project, which is, you may know, is like kind of the preeminent place for the study of wolves and their natural habitat in the United States right now. And it's a really relevant part of the story because 
as I'm sure you and your listeners already know, dogs and wolves, very genetically similar animals, animals that are in fact so similar that they can interbreed with one another, despite being two distinct species, which is like almost the definitional, like uh, impossibility, right? You talk to a lot of biologists and they'll say like, you know, back of envelope way to define a standalone species is it like can't, it can breed with other members of its, of its same um, species. You can't breed a, you know, orangutan and a gorilla. Um, but a dog and a wolf obviously can breed together. They're so similar. Um, wolves, you see essentially zero, if you talk to the biologists at the Wolf Project, zero of the chronic diseases that are so common among um, household pets, including obesity. And so there's this interesting um, evolutionary detective exercise that's like, what has happened? What has changed in the environment that these two distinct species are living in that's causing this big phenotypical difference. And you're right that like excess is certainly a component of it, but there are plenty others as well. I think you're in New York city, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're very, you know, lots of, uh, I'm sure folks that you're dealing with on a regular basis are living in apartments and are, you know, restricting the amount of movement. You know, the dog is obviously not moving around as much as a wolf in the wild, but the substantive nutritional content that they're taking in on a daily basis has changed dramatically as well. A wolf essentially takes in 0% carbohydrate. Most dogs in the Western world are taking in at least 40% of their calories from carbohydrate. It's a colossal difference. And it seemed to me that it might be part of the explanation. And the, the further I went, basically, the more clear it became that, yeah, this is a central component of the explanation here. That dogs are eating diets that are too high in carbohydrates and that the fix to that is therefore a diet that is what? Uh, so uh, the way that I would phrase it is like this. There's a really, really well-developed experimental record, peer-reviewed science, that shows that a calorie of carbohydrate is considerably more fattening for a dog than the same calorie of a different nutrient, such as protein or fat. Same study has been done over and over again, where essentially the researchers take two distinct groups of dogs that are as matched as they can be, and they feed them exactly the same number of calories, and they give them exactly the same access to activity. The only thing that they do differently is they give one group more protein and less carbohydrate and the other group less protein and more carbohydrate, but they give them exactly the same number of calories in and exactly the same number of calories out. And every time that is experiment is conducted, the same thing happens. The dogs on the higher carbohydrate diet get fat and the dogs on the low carbohydrate diet don't get fat. And it's been done over and over again. And it's not some like trivial, um, immaterial uh, difference. It's like colossal differences the main like the, the biggest most legit study that's been done in this space you're talking about six times more fat gain over a three-month period um and again taking in exactly the same number of calories um, so you you learned about this were you already familiar with uh people going on keto like diets very low carb low protein high fat diets or moderate protein high fat diets I think the way I would describe kind of like the um, the environment surrounding that issue at the time. So you're talking about like 2011 to 2015. Mm -hmm. And at that time, some of um, what I think of today 
as like the leading kind of constitutional texts on this subject in the human world, human nutrition world, had been published. A guy you might be familiar with whose name is Gary Taubes. He's a science journalist who brought a really rigorous background into the, the domain of human nutrition and wrote these massive books about the science of basically why people get fat. He literally wrote a book called Why We Get Fat. And his like kind of magnum opus had already been written at that point. And I grew familiar with it over the course of looking into this stuff. And I found it very persuasive. It was like before a time when like the expression keto was something in the like everyday parlance of like Joe Blow. You know what I mean? There weren't like uh, mm -hmm. consumer products that were being framed as like keto crackers or keto energy bars or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, like the, 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 in the like intellectual ground like uh framework had been laid to some degree enough that it was persuasive to me um so that's kind of like where it stood at that point since then obviously things have changed um nowadays it, i'm i'm always like i'm shocked there's basically one other dog food brand i think there are something like 300 dog food companies in the united states there's one other brand that's like leaning into being a low carb keto branded product and it shocks me every morning that I wake up that more people aren't like knocking off this concept. So you went from sort of being curious about your own dog and how to keep your dog healthy to realizing that there's this obesity epidemic. And instead of going back to your life as a lawyer and feeding your dog uh, <laughs> a, a keto type diet or Googling, you know, how to feed your dog a keto type diet, you decided to start a dry dog food company. Is that I started to, right? I left the job to write the book. Basically. Okay. Like the more I like went down the rabbit hole, it started off as just like personal notes. And then it became maybe there's something here that could be um, an ebook that would be useful for somebody else as well. And then like the further I went, you know, I, I alluded before, there's like kind of two main theses in the book. One is the scientific one that's like carbs the devil. The other one is that the reason that more people don't appreciate that already has this big, significant, like cultural, social explanation, which is essentially that like there's a kind of information manipulation in bad faith going on where essentially companies that rely heavily on protecting the idea that carbohydrate is perfectly healthy for dogs are playing a really gross and kind of scandalous role in shaping the, what the veterinary community believes about this issue and what the lay public believes about it. And, so and that, what is their motivation? Oh, what, like why do they want to use carbohydrates so heavily? Yeah, if, if that's really not what's best for our dogs, what's the, what's the argument on the other side or the argument they're not, or, or the thing they're not stating in your opinion? Yeah, so the reason why, the motivation to answer that question is a calorie of carbohydrate costs roughly one-tenth of the cost of a calorie of meat-based. The second, though, is like there's this phenomenon that you see over and over again in industry these days. These days, I mean, like over the past few centuries, where <laughs> business takes off because it's creating something that has what appears to be real usefulness. And a really good example, in my eyes at least, is the cigarette industry, making cigarettes out of tobacco. In that case, making this product makes people feel some degree of relaxation or stress release or whatever. And there's no evidence at the time that the industry is growing into this dominant billion dollar thing that it's bad for health. And it's all going along just fine. And then some scientific work gets done 
And some evidence starts to develop that, uh uh-oh, this thing that became so popular is actually kind of bad for people. And then it gets more and more significant. And by the time that body of evidence is like very persuasive, you've got this colossal industry that's already developed that's built upon the notion that it's perfectly healthy. And you just don't turn that Titanic around quickly. If you're, you know, Hills Pet Nutrition, for example, and you and the backbone of your product line is 50% corn products, it is not easy to just be like, oh, what? sorry, persuaded. This new study really convinced me that we need to change the price point for all our products and start making them entirely meat-based instead. That's not how, in my experience, how business works. Instead, right. you get pushback for literally decades um, before that, you know, folks roll over and recognize the reality of the situation. Uh, so tell me about then, you know, starting a... Um, at the time I published the book in the fall of 2016, if you bought into the notion that I advocated for in the book, if you thought carbohydrate was bad for your dog, and the animal should really take in protein and fat, um, you're kind of in a difficult spot because you could do one of two things and neither of them was a particularly good option. You could feed the lowest carbohydrate kibble style product you could find. And in that case, you're probably talking about something that's about 30% dietary digestible carbohydrate, which is relatively low compared to plenty of other products, but it's still kind of a lot. It's like, you know, nine times, 10 times as much as any wolf has ever taken in in its life, maybe more than that. Um, However, the other option is not great either. The other option is you're going to feed either a raw or subsequently what's developed or, you know, these, this subsector of the industry makes fresh diets. So it's not raw, but it's also not kibbleized. And those products, um, the way the kibble is made is sort of like baking meaty bread. Basically you like mix a bunch of ingredients together and you heat them up and they break down and, and the term of art is gelatinize and it holds all the dough together so that like, once it gets hot enough, you've got a single cohesive, nugget like a biscuit or a you know bagel or whatever um and you need or it was long believed you needed starch you needed dietary carbohydrate in order to do that that basically like if you've ever tried to bake a loaf of bread without flour it doesn't the dough doesn't hold together it just wants to fall apart and so like kibble kind of is long believed to like require that but if you're making a raw product you're selling a raw product you don't need to do that and so it's the case that plenty of raw products very low in carbohydrate content. So if you're a pet owner that believed the carbohydrate was bad, you could feed your dog one of those products. The, the issue with those, of course, is that calorie for calorie, they're hugely expensive as compared to kibble. Like kibble is so inexpensive that there's just like a um, non-starter quality to the price point for a lot of raw products. For people, you know, if you have a small dog, plenty of dogs, I imagine, in apartments in New York City, it's one thing, the difference between, you know, 50 cents a day and 250 a day because you're talking about literally five times as much it's another i have two saint bernards okay so mm-hmm. it's like for me that delta is between like 15 bucks a day and 60 bucks a day it's like a really big difference and it's just like a complete non-starter none of those are great options for some people and so i always i thought you know if we could make a kibble product but solve this issue of doing it without dietary carbohydrate there'd be people that would be interested in that so yeah we spent about a year trying to put that kind of thing together is something that as a matter of like, you know, I'm doing the air quotes in my hands, food engineering had never really been done before. People kind of just assumed that you needed to use starch in order to get it to hold together. We found ways to make it happen using animal products. There are basically certain tissues in the animal's body that have a binding quality. 
And um, yeah, we work with um, formulators, nutritionists, um, really great like, manufacturing partner. And it took about a year and we uh, were able to put something together that's less than 5% dietary carbohydrate. I'm not that uh, knowledgeable about nutrition. Uh, it's just not something I've ever been that particularly interested in. However, five or six years ago or so, kind of early on before it's keto seemed like a thing, I, I kind of got into like, <laughs> it feels like embarrassing to admit, but like oh. keto shakes, like, right. uh, because I'm like so lazy about food. I was like, oh, I can just drink this thing and it's made with heavy cream. And it's like, <laughs> um, I've since like, I think improved my approach, but, uh, I found it, it, made a lot of sense to me when I started learning about um, what what a keto diet is and how it works. And, and um, maybe you can give a, a sort of um, little summary of that. And also, sure, sure. I, I'm assuming um, from what I understand about keto, you can't sort of give a little bit of your food then and, a, and some other kind of food because ketosis, the dog's body is either in ketosis or not, I'm assuming similarly as with the human and that that means that they need to be uh having uh, under a certain amount of carbohydrates yeah so let me let me kind of run with this for a little yeah. bit um so keto diet refers to the um this this substrate that's produced in the body whether it's a dog or a human being called ketone bodies. And basically these things, ketone bodies are a source of metabolic fuel and your body or your dog's body will produce more or less of them depending on a variety of conditions and circumstances. One of them, as you noted, is the amount of dietary carbohydrate that's being consumed. And so very roughly speaking, the more carbohydrate that you eat, the less ketone or your dog the less ketone bodies will be produced, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, there are other factors as well. The amount of fat versus protein is relevant. The amount of overall calories taken in is relevant. The amount and type of activity is relevant. But really, the main, the most impactful thing is like, if you can eliminate or drastically reduce the amount of carbohydrate intake, you, your body, your dog's body, produce more ketone body. Now, we chose the keto prefix for our food, not because it's like, we say this all over the website. It's like, if you are trying to put your dog into a maximally ketogenic state, if you're trying to, if your belief is that what's good about the keto diet is being in ketosis, ketosis is the state of producing a lot of ketones. And so if you believe that what you want to do is make yourself as maximally or your dog maximally ketotic as possible, you want to go beyond number one, of course, you want to eliminate carbohydrate as much as possible, but there's more you can do too. And it's been shown to work in dogs as well. If you want to make your dog produce more ketones, you can just give it some of this one kind of fat, medium chain triglycerides. They'll make more ketones. Our, the reason we use the keto, keto prefix is kind of twofold. One is AFCO sets is this organization, a lot of your readers, listeners know, Association of American Feed Control Officials. And basically, they're the folks that set the rules that matter for how you label dog food in the United States. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the, the rules that's absolutely absurd, but that AFCO came out with something like six years ago, is if you make dog food in the United States, you are affirmatively prohibited from using the expression low carbohydrate. In addition, you're not allowed to disclose the total carbohydrate content in what's called the guaranteed analysis panel, the panel that's got the numbers on the bag, the equivalent of like a nutrition facts. There are, you know, this number of calories per, per cup, there's this much protein. You are not at present allowed to give a total carbohydrate content. And wasn't very long ago that you, you couldn't reference any kind of carbohydrate at all in there. And it's still the case that nobody's allowed, or excuse me, nobody is required to disclose the amount of any kind of carbohydrate in their product. So if you are, like I was, trying to make a product whose main function, main feature, the selling point was that it was low in carbohydrate content, you had this like, it was a puzzle for like how to communicate that to the consumer. I couldn't say low carb. I couldn't identify the amount of total carbohydrate in the product. And so if this was like I said- Why, why do they have these, these weird rules? Well, you tell me, why do you think they do? They want to support big corn. <laughs> I don't know. Well, not big corn, but they want the, you know, the, like basically these, there are three very large pet food companies that play an inordinate role in influencing kind of how the scientific community and the regulatory community deals with pet food products. And all three of those companies have a very, very vested interest in hiding the ball about how much carbohydrate is really in there. And so the, the rules have evolved. This is the story I tell in my book. The rules have evolved to essentially make that very easy for them to hide that. Um, I should note the rules finally are changing. They've kind of come out of the relevant AFCO committee already. There's going to be a really meaningful, really long overdue, but really good evolution in how you're going to disclose how pet food companies are going to be required to disclose the nutritional content. And it's going to start looking a lot more like the, um, you know, I've got my LaCroix sitting next to me and it has the FDA's nutrition facts panel on it that includes, you know, it's got all the summary of the human nutrition info. It's going to look a lot more like that. It's going to include a total carbohydrate requirement. But circa 2016, when I'm trying to make low carb kibble, it wasn't part of it. And so, like I said, keto wasn't like a, it wasn't a common enough part of the like parlance for there to be an affirmative prohibition on that too. So we just snapped that up and basically, you know, relied on the fact that for most people, their co the common understanding of keto is low carb. And so that's what the, the we, why we use the keto prefix. But we make, you know, like if you're, I'm somebody that believes that the ketosis is kind of a side effect of a good diet. It's not the end goal. The carbohydrate is what's bad. It's not the ketosis that's good in my estimation. My, when I look at the evidence, that doesn't feel very persuasive to me that you should try to put a dog in a maximally ketotic state because there's something magical about ketones. It's that that's a good indicator the dog's eating the right kind of diet because it means it's taking in a little carbohydrate, if that makes sense. Well, with people, you like pee on a stick, right? Do you, to see if you're in ketosis or, or do you sell sticks for people to I, put in their dog's pee? <laughs> I, don't, I don't. You can get that blood test done from your vet, though. And I, I'm not sure if they can do it through urine. I'm pretty sure they can do it through urine. I just don't know if it's calibrated that way. But yeah, you can have that done. So are people saying they're seeing changes when they switch their well, dogs to this food? As for ketosis itself, that's not something that I like really, I don't know, push. I don't think it's common that people get tested, but you can't. No, no. I just mean using your food is what I mean. 
Yeah. So here's what we get a lot of. Um, and you can find this, you, you can test my um, summary of this by looking for yourself. I, I, we get customer feedback in the form of like reviews on Amazon, reviews of our product on our own website, et cetera, from folks who use numbers in their, like who are used to evaluating their dogs for one reason or another. And they're able to say things like, when my dog was on this previous diet, here's relevant number one. When we switched him to Ketona for a month, here's the new number. And particularly what you see it around is folks who have diabetic dogs, their evaluation of their blood sugar and their insulin levels on a daily basis is like part of their lives. I don't know how much you know about diabetes, but basically the way it's managed, like what it is, is like the body loses the ability to process sugar. You take sugar in and it, instead of it naturally going into tissues where it could be held in a stable form, it stays in the bloodstream and you because your body doesn't make enough what's called insulin. And so people whose dogs have diabetes are constantly monitoring blood sugar, trying to understand how much exogenous insulin they need to give the dog so it could do what its pancreas aren't doing naturally. So that, like I said, those people are monitoring that kind of stuff all the time. And one of the things that have, like what, you put a dog on a low carb diet and instead of having blood sugar spikes throughout the day, they have low steady blood sugar. They have low steady insulin as opposed to spiking and cycling insulin. And so you see those kind of numbers all over our reviews. It's like something, you know, I'm not very sensibly, FDA doesn't allow me to say, uh, you know, my dog food cures COVID. You know, I can't, <laughs> the, the, the links between- I should I, hope so. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sensible. But I mean, yeah, so I don't, I can't, I'm not like in order to go through and be able to say my my food is better for diabetes than the um, standard of care, which is like a 40% carbohydrate product. I need to go through the equivalent of basically getting a new vaccine like approved regulatory. Mm -hmm. That's not something I can say, but I would encourage if any of your readers feel or listeners, excuse me, feel skeptical about that notion, I'd encourage you to go take a look at our reviews because it's consistent every single time. If you so are you with Katona, did I say it right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Are people, um, I mean, do you suggest this be solely what they feed their dog or? Yes. Yep, it's a complete imbalance. Uh, so that's the, that's the basically the main AFCO certification. If you uh, can demonstrate that your product contains X amount of protein, X amount of all the various sure. vitamins, nutrients, nutrients, you can market it as what's called a complete and balanced pet food, which is AFCO's way of saying, that's the only thing your dog needs nutritionally. If you feed it just that, it's not going to get a deficiency disease, anything like that. And yes, our products. Meet that but what if, you know, you want to also be feeding your dog something that's not dry? What do you suggest? Um, depends what you're trying to do, I guess. Um, there are plenty of, you know, there are like, uh, I'd put it this way. If I was going to feed my dog a raw diet, um, if it was financially, if somebody bought my company and I was in a different financial position than I'm in right now, and all of a sudden I could spend $100 a day feeding my dogs exactly what I think of as the gold standard. The way that I would frame it is this raw, zero carbohydrate. So all meat commercially prepared, complete and balanced product. Those are the things that I think like there are, unfortunately, for a long time, um, people could see like raw pet foods have been around for a minute, right? Like they're not just brand new. They've been around for decades. And what it seems to me that what advocates of raw diets latched onto about the raw diet that was so good 
was the rawness of it. I don't believe that the evidence really supports that notion. But what right, I, there's, I think there is some evidence actually that cooking fo- food in some cases might actually make certain things more, what's, what do they call it? Um, bioavailable. Bioavailable, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's pretty marginal. Let's put it that way. It's pretty marginal, all that stuff. It's like there might be, somebody could maybe put together an argument and show me like, okay, there's this little bit of a difference, but it's pretty marginal. But one thing that you really do see is a lot of raw diets are zero carbohydrate. And so in that way, they're they're better. But you don't have to make your raw diet zero carbohydrate. That's like kind of the key thing is a lot of folks will go, I feed raw. And it's like, yeah, but you're saying what that means, you could be feeding products that are colossally different from one another. It could be 40% carbohydrate or zero. It could be 40% protein or 20% protein. Big differences. Mm-hmm. So I don't, it's not just like all raw diets are not created equal. And so you've got to look under the hood at the nutritional content. But like I said, for my money, gold standard, funding, if, if convenience and um, you know budget are no uh, issue whatsoever, then yeah, uh, commercially prepared, Complete and balanced, raw, zero carbohydrate, all meat. Mm-hmm. That's what I recommend. Uh, what about um, people who are listening and are into this idea, but worried about um, factory farming and uh, you know meat consumption? Some people don't want to feed their dogs meat at all. Vegetarian, vegan, they prefer. Others, um, uh, I've had clients, uh, there's like a cricket based. Yeah. I think it's, I thought about that and you know, if, as long as we can be successful, I believe that someday we'll start offering that as an option to our customers too. I didn't believe that like at the time we were starting the company that we could come out of the blocks with that. Cause it just, I think it's a tough pitch to people emotionally. Um, but to respond to to feed your dog bugs. Yeah. Yeah, that there's <laughs> instinctual disgust response that governs hmm. some of your buying behavior. Some, pe- I mean, look, I'm not saying that I uh, that it's um, appropriate or that there's anything wrong or right about it. I'm just saying, like, I it was my judgment that if we started with that, we might not have gotten off the ground. Mm-hmm. And so, that's what, but if I agree with you that that might be because I, I, you know, to answer your question, like for folks that are concerned about issues like factory farming and sustainability and how the pet food industry fits within that, that's a pickle for sure. Because I will tell you right now that there's, if you, I, uh, look, nobody's researched pet food, the pet food industry more than I have. There are not kibble companies that are producing um, family farm produced meat products. Everything is taking place at an industrial scale. And it's not the case that it's sustainable, period. Mm -hmm. If you, there are differences in marketability. There are some brands that make it appear that it's like our stuff feels very wholesome. I think those folks are. There's a picture of a farmer on the the bag. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, (laughs) that that type of thing. And so, yeah, to me, that is a legit pickle. That there is a, given the amount of number of pets that live in the United States right now, and given the nutritional realities, I'm just telling you what the nutritional science says, there is legit tension between sustainability and optimal nutrition. And so at the moment right now, you kind of got to make some choices. You got to weigh priorities. There's not something that is the perfect answer on both of those issues, other than 
if you're raising, uh, you know, you can make diets yourself, I guess, is kind of the, the best way at present to sort of square the circle. Like if you buy meat that you feel good about, you know, you can buy store-bought meat where you feel pretty good about how it's produced and how it's sourced. And you can combine that with other ingredients to make the appropriate nutritional profile for your pet, then that might be a way to go about doing it. Um, it's a challenging process because it's like, it's not just as simple as giving your dog a chicken breast every day. There's like, you know, you will give your animal deficiency diseases if it doesn't take in certain micronutrients in the right quantities. Long-term, I tend to agree with you that I think it's something like that, that like insects might be a way to like bring those two things together because they certainly do have the, the appropriate nutritional content, like the, uh, you know, crickets or black fly larvae or whatever don't contain any carbohydrate. It's just, um, so yeah, might well be. We'll, you know, watch this space over the next 10 years. Is it possible to have a keto diet that is vegetarian? I mean, I know. Conceptually, you know. it's not impossible. You got to do a lot of work. You got to mm -hmm. do a lot of work. Um, I am, you know, you probably know this. One of the differences between um, plant-based proteins and animal-based proteins right, is that the amino acid content tends, tends to be quite different. Amino acids are this class of nutrients that make up proteins. And there's, you know, several different like amino acids. And so when you, when your veterinarian or, or your, uh, you know, your doctor talks about the completeness of a protein, they're referring to what the amino acid content is, how much of the various amino acids are contained in the protein. And it's the case that there are certain amino acids that like you just don't find in animal or excuse me, in plant-based protein, particularly the like quintessential example is what's called taurine. Taurine is a kind of amino acid that you can't find in plant-based protein. Mm -hmm. And so if you do that, like basically you're, there are plenty, there are companies out there right now that are making zero meat pet foods that are marketed to folks who believe in that, uh, the efficacy of that either nutritionally or ethically. And they're able to engineer a nutritional profile that meets AFCO's requirements. It just gives me pause, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Cause that's stuff like if you don't take in the, like a, a complete amino acid profile, there are real documented repercussions of that. And you are kind of rolling the dice. You're basically saying, I trust that these people engineered it to be just like mother nature required. And that just gives me, that's the kind of thing that I like to have like several generations of evidence on rather than being like, I'm going to throw my dog into that in generation number one. That scares me. It happened over and over again in the United States where it's like people say, oh, I'm making something. It's perfectly healthy. And then 30 years later, we realize, oops, now we have the evidence. It's, it's bad. Would you say that what you've done is change the proportions of the ingredients so that it's very low in carbohydrates? Or um, is it that your food contains ingredients that you're not going to find in other dog foods? Uh, so it's a little of both. Um, it's not the case that we have any magic ingredients that I would say. There's not, nothing that like I've got access to that nobody else in the pet food industry has access to. But the process that we use to like basically get the kibble to adhere together does rely on some things that are like kind of not, they weren't obvious to us when we started, like when we were trying to solve this puzzle in the first instance. But the bigger thing, like, and that's really just a matter of like food, like I said, food engineering. Like if you wanted to just make um, kibble dust, all you would have to do is change the proportion of existing ingredients, 
right? Mm-hmm. You could just very easily make something that like ours is 50% protein, 5% carbohydrate, but it just like the challenge you would have if you didn't use some novel stuff is getting it to hold together. So the novel stuff helps it hold together, but the vast majority of the difference is, yeah, we just use more chicken and less um, tubers and cereal grains. It's just like scale it way down. Where can people get your food? Is it available uh, so at sell- major, major pet stores? Uh, not major pet stores, unless you use that term loosely enough to include online retailers. We sell mm-hmm. through major online retailers. We're not making any effort yet to be in brick and mortar stores, um, which is just sort of a function of like where the how, how pet food consumers tended to shop at the time we founded the company. COVID came along not long after we founded it. And it just, you know, our early, our ambition is to one day make that expansion. But right now there's a lot of like runway for growth for us without having to worry about that. And there are like some advantages too. It's just sort of like I can react directly to what my consumers want if I'm selling only online, whereas selling through stores is really kind of clunky and leaves me pretty far away from them. So, yep, just online. I just, I searched at Chewy.com and I see a company called Smart Dogs Eat Low Carb and one called Keto Foundations or Keto Foods. Yep. Chewy is a, um, we have a, we have an ongoing little bit of a like skirmish with them. We've sold on their (laughs) platform in the past and at the present moment, we're not doing it. Um, if you're into our product and you only buy through Chewy, you can sign up for our email list or something like that. And you'll be the first to know if we can work out our differences. Um, (laughs) but at present, if you like getting it shipped directly to your door, which is what we typically do, you get it through Amazon, you can buy it through us directly. And we're in the process of getting up and going on Petco as well. And so there, it's not hard to get if you live in the continental United States. We'll put it on your door and doorstep in like 48 hours. Great. Well, anything that we didn't talk about that, that you think we should, uh, we should cover? I mean, look, we could talk about the content of the book till the cows come home. We could talk about <laughs> the issue of ECM, which is something I've done a great deal of work on. I don't know if that means anything to you. This like there's a FDA kerfuffle surrounding the issue of whether grain-free pet foods produce the um, rare cardiac disease, dilated cardiomyopathy, TCM. And sometimes when I do these kinds of interviews, folks want to talk about that a lot. It's a big subject. I'd encourage, you know, we probably would need to do a whole episode. So mm. then that's what we've been talking about. I, I, you've done it. Uh, yeah, you pulled everything that I know out of me, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good job. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, grain-free, well, is your is your food grain-free? Yeah, it is. Not that I believe there's anything particularly good. For my money, the evidence doesn't show that grains are a special kind of particularly bad carbohydrate, that replacing, say, corn with potato in the same quantities, if I'm going to use the same amount of carbohydrate, a calorie of carbohydrate from potato is quite similar to a calorie of carbohydrate from corn. And there's doesn't deserve to be a whole sector of the industry that's grain free because no nothing inherently better about it. However, I do vehemently believe that the kerfuffle over grain free diets and DCM is involves outright fraud that it was many a manufactured issue. Um, and so yeah, like I said, we by happenstance are caught up in it because we don't use grain in the product, but it's not like a selling point of the product. You can get Keto Natural 
dog food at ketonaturalpetfoods.com and you can use the code PODCAST20 for 20% off your order. As always, if you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, leave a review, give us a five-star rating, tell your friends, and support us by booking a training session at schoolforthedogs.com or shopping at storeforthedogs.com.